Project Lawful aka Plane Crash by Yarwain aka Eliezer Yudkowski and Lintamande. Thread 4, Project Lawful and Their Oblivious Boyfriend. Episode 76. Message. Pilar, the High Priestess's office. Pilar will obey. Of course. Hasint is still in her inner office. Carissa and Pilar are making use of one of her antechambers. What happened to you yesterday? I got the church's account of it. Well, it started with her curse warning her about a party of Osirian adventurers, presumably dispatched by Osirian to kidnap the cake girl, in the sense of sending her to the key location with a cake to be delivered about 50 minutes later. Then Pilar's curse told her she shouldn't just turn the kidnappers over to security because that would make her curse sad, and her curse claimed that giving her the information was an act of trust in Pilar's lawfulness, and she needed to act like a god, or her curse wouldn't be trusting her again. So Pilar went to the Grand High Priestess's office to submit herself to the authority of somebody who understood deranged, chaotic good curses, invoking implied god agreements. But the Grand High Priestess was not there, and when she was contacted by Mirror, the person she put in charge of Pilar was Pilar. Pilar had to run a meeting. It involved a lot of intelligence officers debating what to make Osirian believe. They were much older and more powerful than her and Pilar had to act like she was an invincible, project lawful girl who was totally able to run meetings like that. There were lots of decisions about what was best for Project Lawful, and Carissa Savar was completely out of contact, and the Grand High Priestess had put Pilar in charge, and Pilar had to guess what Savar would have wanted her to have done. Pilar doesn't actually sound this plaintive. It's just very, very clear subtext for this perfectly professional report that Pilar is giving. Relatable, thinks Carissa. And then she realizes that she isn't going to let that show on her face because she's in charge here and is supposed to know what she's doing. And then imagines Keltham sputtering about signaling equilibriums that shouldn't equilibrate and then lets it show on her face just a tiny bit as a reward for Pilar if Pilar has good sense motive. Optimistically, she says, maybe Caden Kyleon has noticed we're going to win and is hoping he can buy the victory being smoother and less wasteful in exchange for it happening faster, which pleases Asmodeus or hoping he can buy the world will build having more whorehouses and parties, I don't think those are inherently un-Asmodean. But I expect that's not what Nemamel would say. Could we wake her from her sleep and ask her? Pilar wasn't actually expecting that much approval. It makes her feel better, but only a little. Pilar feels like she has probably done a lot of things that call for her to be punished, and not in a matter-of-faith way where she could assign it herself. Submitting to High Priestess Subarox for her cruel amusement isn't the same as that. Somebody who actually knows what Pilar did wrong has to tell her what that was. The closest she's gotten to that is one spy punching her in the face, and he wasn't even on the right side. Pilar continues her story. Somebody said that Project Lawful's cover had probably been blown as soon as dozens of uncleared emergency responders went to the villa and then a god war started, because if you try to stonewall adversaries completely about a god war, they'll start using ninth circle scrolls to get your people or get information out of them. 
so Pilar personally made the irrevocable decision for all of Project Lawfin that they were going to go deliberately high-profile to the other countries, but with everything resting on the power of Pilar's own weird curse, because that weird curse didn't seem very related to what Project Lawful was actually about, making it a good distraction. They had a seventh circle wizard go in looking like Pilar to deliver the cake, and she made the Osirians actually eat it with her, and then sent them home. That was how Pilar's adventure yesterday started. One moment I'm deciding whether you made the right call or not. I think yes. The one thing we can't afford for them to learn about is Keltham. If they're desperately trying to learn about the other girls, that's resources not dedicated to learning about Keltham. Unless you're scryable. This place has some anti-scrying. Don't go outside until I think more about it. Do you have possessions or relations such that you'd be distracted if they were kidnapped? Pilar has already been so instructed on never leaving scry-shielded places without escorts. There are probably a lot of people looking for her by now. Pilar has a mother and sister who cannot come before Lord Asmodeus in her heart, but even after she said that, they got moved by security anyways, which must be the correct decision since security knows best. She owns nothing of real importance to her, saving perhaps her spellbook. After the cake incident ended, Pilar asked her curse if she'd behaved like a proper god around this deranged god agreement she'd never made, and Pilar's curse said yes and good job and offered to help her scare a paladin out of the palace. So Pilar called the Grand High Priestess again and reported that, and what she'd already done, but it was only briefly, and the Grand High Priestess couldn't possibly review everything that Pilar no doubt did wrong, and anyways wouldn't have the time for assigning her punishments. The Grand High Priestess said that this was beginning to become interesting and told her to go scare off the paladin. Pilar's curse required her to feel an actual desire to let the paladin go home safely before she was able to find him. She didn't think until afterwards about whether maybe her curse might have tricked her into sending a paladin away safely who was going to be maledicted anyways. Her curse said that, if so, hypothetically speaking, the paladin would have completed his mission first, and Asmodeus wouldn't have considered that a good trade, and would have been well served by scaring off the paladin instead, for Pilar will never be used against her lord. Pilar expressed some skepticism about chaotic good, apparently being fine with the paladin not completing his mission. Her curse claimed that it was totally reasonable for lawful evil and chaotic good to team up against lawful good, just like against chaotic evil because they both found paladins annoying for different reasons. Pilar asked how her curse felt about throwing surprise parties for all the last wall spies targeting the palace so that they'd get to go home safely to their families. Pilar's curse said sure, but there would have to be offsets from the standpoint of chaotic good. Make it an offer. There was a meeting with very senior government officials asking Pilar whether chaotic, good-pleasing things they could do cheaply were good enough for her, like they thought it was her making the decisions and not her oracular curse. And in the middle of that, the queen came in and asked Pilar why nobody had thought of asking the queen to be part of the Osirian scaring operation, and Pilar felt like a tiny baby mouse too small for a huge hawk to be worth eating, being asked by the hawk why it hadn't been invited to the baby mouse's party. Now there's some things Cheliax is doing for chaotic good, in exchange for getting rid of as many spies as they did, 
mostly undoing some small things that Kate and Kalian would have really hated and that weren't actually helping Cheliax that much. Plus a compact that, so long as it looks like Lastwall still really doesn't have any eyes left on the palace, they're not going to try any plots more nefarious than they would have done if Lastwall had still been watching. The compact was signed by the queen in blood. Pilar let her curse direct her, and what her curse did was... Her curse mushed a cupcake into the parchment so that the pink icing left behind would be her curse's signature. Pilar doesn't actually know whether or not she would still be alive if the Grand High Priestess hadn't been personally attending the meeting by then. She probably would be. Abrogale's perfectly capable of being professional when there are real stakes for Cheliax. Of course, Cheliax has lots of diamonds right now, so maybe Pilar being dead isn't real stakes. But let me guess, too busy to offer any detailed opinion on your conduct, besides that you should go ahead and round up all the spies. Carissa Sevar is right. How did Carissa Sevar know? So Pilar pointed out the people who would be invited to her surprise and arranged a huge party in the palace's largest ballroom, and everybody was invited in such a way as to scare them as little as possible. Also, one of the people who did the inviting was the queen, and Pilar had to go with the queen to set that up, and the queen talked at her about things, and actually Pilar would rather not think about that entire conversation for the rest of her life. Then there was a huge party for the spies who got to go home, with Pilar dressed as Meritzel, who Pilar hopes enjoys being very, very famous to other countries' intelligence services. The queen danced with a prostitute, Pilar comforted somebody who was sad about his country probably not wanting him back, and explained that home can be anywhere that people care about you and doesn't have to be the country you were born in. Pilar's curse was very excited and happy, and said that Pilar got another week before her curse started feeling hungry again. Apparently, even though Pilar got musicians and official imperial snack catering and gave colorful hats to all the security officers, it did not count as a real actual proper party to her curse, because the party didn't have enough true camaraderie, revelry, sex, and drugs. Or something. Pilar has not previously been really into Caden Kalian theology. Then she finally was allowed to go to her new quarters in the fortress, and High Priestess Subirox was very mean to her. That, plus a knapsack, was the only reason Pilar was remotely functional today. Right. Okay. Carissa's day was not actually all that much better, but she's not going to say that. It might be worth separating out trying to appease your curse and trying to leverage your curse for counter-espionage, she says after a bit of thought. I bet you could ask your curse for, I don't know, some girl in Ostenso in a predicament chaotic good would be sad about and that Asmodeus doesn't prefer either, blinded by a fever and starving to death, raised in a cellar by Ergothoa cultists, whatever, and throw her a we've-restored-you-to-health-and-to-life party, and maybe that keeps the curse sated, rather than trying to time the palace events to the curse's demands, which might leak information some way we're not thinking of. Would this paladin otherwise have been maledicted? And also, would this paladin otherwise have learned something false that served Cheliacs are things you should have thought of before you talked to the paladin? It worked out fine, but it might not have. It's possible your curse is trying to get you in the habit of doing curse things without checking if they are also the best deal you can get. Cheliacs and our lord.
It is stupid, dangerous, and stupidly dangerous to operate in the palace without understanding the queen and what she'll want to hear about and what to involve her in directly, but I am tempering my judgment over that because I'm not sure that the important people in the room would have known what to tell you. It is very Asmodean to be able to make yourself believe useful things that you know on some level Namamal, with your information, wouldn't believe. I don't get why, actually, and I think it might be close to the secret of Evil Dath Elon, and this might veer close towards instruction on faith, which I can't offer you, but I'm not going to punish believing that the paladins should get to go home because that'd be nice for them. Your beliefs ought to serve Asmodeus, and that one did. On the whole, I don't hear major errors in that. You are in the power of a really annoying enemy, which permits you very little of what it'd be healthy for you to enjoy. But getting rid of all Last Wall's spies is a huge achievement, and might let us root out their revolutionaries, too, if they have worse information. The myth of the Project Lawful Girls exceeds our real capacities, but not for very long, maybe, if we keep learning. You may try on my headband and think for a minute about whether there's anything else you got wrong that Pilar, who was smarter, would have gotten right. Pilar's pretty honored by this. She will put on the headband. The headband definitely feels like it is making Pilar be much smarter. Pilar can now be allowed to know things that she thinks only a smarter Pilar ought to know. It would have been really valuable for us to know what the Osirians would have asked the cake girl if they'd taken her prisoner. I could have ordered a security to go ask for volunteers in the palace dungeons. Somebody would have been genuinely cheerful about getting out to do that, even if there was a chance they might get soulbind cast on them for a while. I feel like I was being really stupid when I was talking to the paladin— amateurish. I was making too much up as I went along. I'm afraid he's going to get home and somebody's going to figure out that he wasn't really talking to an agent of Milani. I should have given his cookie to a more experienced agent and let them talk to him. I should not have talked up Paxty as Project Lawful's deadliest agent. It should have been somebody who's just quietly reliable like Gregoria. I made that choice because I thought Paxty would like it, not to serve our lord. That's severe. Most of the sin and transgression I'm feeling is because I talked sharply to people who were above me and better than me and ordered them around, and even if I had to do that, I feel like that's something an Asmodean should still be punished for. I grabbed away your authority and made decisions for your project while you were out of contact, even if that was my best effort at doing a job the Grand High Priestess ordered me to do, it doesn't mean that I shouldn't be punished for all the things I chose to do along the way. If I'd done it wrong or disobeyed, that would mean being punished even more. But I still... It's like Keltham's game. There's a best way to play, but not a way where you don't lose any 2S. And I should have arranged for somebody to cast Fox's cunning and Owl's wisdom on me before the meeting started. It was important. Pilar takes off the headband less reluctantly than some people would. Being the person who a smarter Pilar seems like she ought to be is not as comfortable as being regular Pilar. The Grand High Priestess thinks you'll be the first success if I do discover a way to produce evil Doth Ilani. Maybe the only one. I understood her at the time just to be saying that it'll be very painful, and you can take it, and it will be. But I think maybe she was saying something that is also gestured at by Keltham's game.
You'll play even if you only ever lose. There is a human weakness, a tendency to shy away from games we are sure to lose. That is attenuated in you, I think. I'm going to take a while to calculate these punishment codes. I haven't done this before. You're dismissed to lunch. Thank you, Pilar doesn't say, because Cheliax. But the thank you that she's not saying is very sincere. Acknowledged, Pilar says, and goes to lunch feeling a lot better and very glad that she has superiors like Carissa Sever and Aspexia Rugatone, who hopefully are not doing this at all because they feel any fondness for Pilar personally. It would be sad if Hell had to correct them for that. Carissa works out the codes and then heads to Miles' office to make sure they're on the same page about plan. Pretend that Cheliax is incompetently managed to cover genuine incompetence and also permit the degree of illegibility they want. Cheliax is incompetently managed. Anywhere that somebody on the order of the Queen or Aspexia Rugatuna is not watching very closely. Sever is unfamiliar with this because she went from her wizard school, managed by a wizard wearing probably a plus-six intelligence headband, to the world wound, which is where a lot of the best managers are being expended, and then straight to Project Lawful. Sever has never in her entire life tried to serve on, let alone manage, a temple project inside the capital of some random county in the Chelish boondocks, where there's three layers of higher management between you and Igorian, never mind King Infrexus. Miles got this one. He can be totally realistic about this. Carissa and Pilar are both gone, which Meritzel takes as an opportunity to sit next to Keltham and quiz him if he seems amenable to quizzing about what kinds of things there are prediction markets for in Dathilan. Are there prediction markets for who the next legislators will be? Are there prediction markets for which of all the lunch places in a city will be ruled the tastiest? Are there prediction markets for who in your class is best in bed? Prediction markets for the next legislators. Of course, everyone gets to look at them except for the representatives who actually have to redelegate their delegated votes to legislators, who are generally asked by their own constituents not to look at those prediction markets to avoid circularity. Prediction markets for restaurants being tasty. You could subsidise a tiny market on a prediction on whether a restaurant will be tasty to you as you'll rate the meal afterwards, and some now. Tiny golems, possibly belonging to some kind of rich merchant entity that only buys and sells predictions. We'll fight it out among themselves to predict your rating. It's not clear what it would mean for a restaurant to be tastiest, in general. A prediction markets for who in your class is best in the cuddle room. It's much harder to guess how somebody will rate somebody else's cuddle room skills, especially while you're young enough to be in classes, and there's not much data on you. A restaurant has lots more customers and ratings that the prediction trading merchants get to see. Most cuddle room encounters aren't rated at all. You could obviously subsidise a personal rating prediction on a sex worker just like a restaurant. That's almost exactly analogous. Does that, subsidising a rating, I mean, work better than just asking a friend for a recommendation? Nothing prevents your friend from buying into the tiny prediction market. If your friend thinks they have relevant information about you, that rich prediction trading merchants' tiny golems haven't figured out. Okay. Carissa managed this by pretty much literally saying, you should resolve your contractual hang-ups so we can have sex. And Meritzel is younger and less daring and not going to do that. When it comes to dating people who aren't sex workers, that's more a case of not so much asking your friends for recommendations 
as your friends betting with each other on how you'll rate somebody after having dated them. A recommendation isn't falsifiable and quantifiable the same way. Keltham can guess that's not how it works in Cheliacs. How do people find the best date recommenders? Is it just a matter of asking somebody else who recommended them a very good date? Keltham may possibly be trying to flirt back by keeping the topic on dating, potentially permitting slow, deniable escalation towards common knowledge of interest. It's hard to read this because he's so alien. Mostly people just tell their friends who they find hot, and then their friends egg them on into asking them out, slash being conveniently vulnerable in their vicinity, whatever. It isn't very chellish to seek assurance about how well it'll work out first. It is generally believed that you learn useful things from the failures as much as the successes, at least at their age. It would be a very rare prediction market that claimed to be certain you'll give a great rating to somebody you've never dated before. If you want assurance of it working it out well, you'll be waiting a long, long time for your first date. That seems like a very silly thing to want, really. Like the kind of laundry wizard who gets a taste of the fundamental forces of reality and decides to make very sure the fundamental forces of reality never do anything interesting where they can see it. Inquiring minds then want to know what constitutes a non-fundamental force of reality. Well, what's the most interesting thing you've done with a fundamental force of reality, then? I'm only a shy, new second-circle wizard, she says. All I can do to the fundamental forces of reality is make them summon a horse or spit glue at people or sneeze fire or make doors look open when they're closed or go invisible or fill rooms with sparkles or turn into someone else. When I'm a great and powerful wizard, I will have a few more tricks up my sleeve. What's the first one you're really looking forward to, then? Fly. Instantly. Carissa joins them. You know, at the World Wound, you wouldn't have gotten a personal-use third-circle slot for another seven years. I guess I'm glad I'm not at the World Wound. Not primarily for that reason. Not letting people play around with their new magic for seven years seems sort of pointlessly non-optimal anti-fun. Is this a Galarian error, or is there actually a good reason? Little surprised and unnerved about invisibility being only a second-circle spell, though. Are there politeness codes about not doing that? Rules? Or do people in wizard schools just have to run detect magic a lot? Mostly there's nowhere in school where you'd expect to have privacy, Meritzel says after considering for a second whether this is also true in Taldor. It'd be illegal to go invisibly into someone else's house or something. That's trespassing. But you can't trespass on a dorm that sleeps 12. Any safeguards here? Or is it just that you'd expect security to spot the invisible person and nope them? Here I imagine they've got the entire place ringed with alarm spells that ping whenever anyone crosses them and security that can see invisibility and... Actually, now that I've got arcane sight, I bet I'd be able to see... Not the invisible person, but the fact there was a spell. If they didn't have more powerful magic concealing it, which a real intruder probably would. Okay, so, it's not that you're hiding that you've all suddenly got arcane sight. I am apparently allowed to know if the topic comes up. Everyone except Ione and Pilar is not pretending to cast Detect Magic while they're watching Carissa construct her incredibly impressive scaffold. It's just that this thing happened, and nobody is mentioning it to me, even though I am authorized to know it. Did no one mention it? says Meritzel, innocent and baffled. After Asmodia and Pilar died, those of us who hadn't made our afterlife arrangements did. And that comes with a perk, and most people pick arcane sight. Well, most wizards. I hadn't heard either. Congratulations. Thank you. Message. Ioni is actually with Nethys. Pilar got touched by Caden Kalian. Carissa, why do you not have arcane sight? 
Well, I haven't made afterlife arrangements in the last two days. I was busy. Also, I'd talk to you about it first, actually. It's not strictly in the set of things I've given you, but I'd want to discuss it. Message. Got it. Why wouldn't everyone make their afterlife arrangements before starting wizard school, if it comes with that perk? Keltham says aloud. So, the reason it comes with perks at all is because you get the perk from the specific devil who you are selling your soul to in exchange for joining their organization on your death. And setting aside whether children ought to be allowed to promise that, a random child's soul isn't going to be valuable enough they can get a powerful, permanent magical boon from selling it. Mostly, you actually wait until you're older than us and more powerful, at the perfect balance between how much you can get for your soul and how long you'll have to enjoy it. But... Sorry about that, then. If apologies are appropriate here, it seems like the sort of thing for which you should get compensation, if there's a more powerful version of Arcane Sight you're locked out of because you were working on a dangerous project. Or do the contracts come with a buyback option? Actually... I also don't understand why this project is dangerous enough for that if, like, resurrections, also afterlives in the first place. Someone else might get to us first, Meritzel says flatly. If you die normally, you go into the River of Souls, and you go all the way to the Boneyard, where you're judged and sorted, and then you go to Hell and get magically dumped at a random location in Avernus, the first layer. And Hell has pretty good infrastructure for moving people from Avernus on, but still, you're going to be sort of cut off from comms for a while. Potentially weeks. Potentially you get held up in the boneyard because Phirasma doesn't like to hold trials for people who are obviously going to be resurrected. And while you're in that situation, if you get a raise, you take it. And you have no way of knowing for sure if it's Cheliac sending it. You can tell the alignment of the person offering to raise you, but... Zon Cuthon's followers are also lawful evil. If you're in a known location in Hell, you're safe. Your secrets are safe. Cheliacs can call ahead and confirm the raise being offered is ours. Understood. Thanks for explaining. Probability that Carissa just cannot manage to make this arrangement for some weird reason or another. Let's say, 20%? It's just that, if everybody else in the harem has now verified their allegiance, he should check that assumption, though. Is there a security process that makes sure when someone does this, or says they've done it, that they've actually made a deal with Asmodeus's people and not Zonkuthon's? When we sell our souls, Meritzel says. Yes, it was done with security supervision from a list of devils maintained by the Church of Asmodeus. I'm not even sure you can sell your soul to Zonkuthon, though. Gods, that'd be awful. We didn't get worse arcane sight, we got the standard, Gregoria says. The project didn't force us to sell our souls for less. They made our souls valuable enough for a standard sale a decade early. Oh, that's good to hear. I'm glad that at least this part of the system is so... What's the word I'm looking for? Functional? I guess because of Asmodeus' involvement. So basically, if there's a hidden cleric, it has to be Carissa. I think Hell is a lot better run than Cheliac's, Carissa says dryly. By the way, can I come when you go ask pointed questions of the site manager? It's not really any of my business, but I think it'll be really funny and maybe inspire me to grow up and build civilization. If you think that's safe career-wise. He frankly did not need this as a thing to worry about. Well, the same logic that says that any of this would be true in the first place also says that Carissa is the first girl, and therefore, out of all the girls here, the one who's guaranteed to have a pathway leading to a happy outcome for the two of them, 
so if she's a Zonkuthon cleric unknown to even herself, it'll be a solvable problem. Optimistic Rationalization I don't think they'd have put someone super unprofessional on the project, but I won't, like, make faces or anything, and if he has me disciplined for looking like I was having too much fun, then we'd have some valuable information. Let's run that experiment, then. Carissa, what's your favorite spell you've cast? Next up spell you're really looking forwards to? I am told this makes me a tedious parody of myself, but I really like Fox's cunning, and I'd be incredibly excited for Dimension Door if I weren't in a forbiddance. Since I am... scrying's going to be fun. Galarian sure does have a lot of spells that seem to have been invented by someone fundamentally opposed to, and perhaps offended by the notion of privacy. Scrying? How's that work? It is a fourth circle spell that finds a person and shows you them and their surroundings, which you can also hear. Somewhat restricted, it won't be in your basic book of magic, because you can use it to spy on people, but it's also essential for most military operations, so it's not top secret like effective enchantments are. They considered hiding this one from Keltham, but keeping him and them unscribable is a major constraint at this point, and because of the one-hour casting time, they can manage plenty of deception with it. I am not going to use it to creep on my ex, though it did occur to me I could use it to get a remote tour of the world if we can pay someone to go teleport to and then walk through other countries and be scryable for us while they do it. Yeah, it hasn't escaped my notice that I made it to an incredible new world and have, you know, been moving around a number of tightly secured indoor rooms since then. I mean, not that this is in any way the wrong decision, but if it drags on a few years, I might start to feel slightly annoyed. Keltham's brain, which has apparently been running a separate subthread this whole time, notes that Carissa sure seems to be a lot into pain, and that he currently has only Carissa's word for how normal of a sexuality that is in Cheliac's. Message to Carissa I noticed you came back with a fancier headband, speaking of Fox's cunning. Is that a safe public topic? Private loan from Aspexia Rogaton. You can mention it, but don't go on about it too much. Everyone will be madly jealous. Okay, good. That seems very probably safe. Mostly I was just checking because you said Fox's Cunning was your favorite spell, and I had suspected you might be beyond it now. Indeed. She's so happy about it. Meritzel, sorry to interrupt this conversation. I was enjoying it, but my brain is nagging me about something and I need to go talk to High Priestess Jacinth Subba-whatever, or schedule a time to talk to her, and then hopefully my brain will stop bugging me about it. Of course, Meritzel says cheerily enough, but glares at Carissa a tiny bit for interrupting like that. Keltham goes to have another awful conversation about tropes, which, at least this time, he is doing the virtuous thing and making advanced predictions about. The High Priestess was not especially expecting suddenly Keltham, but her poise is, of course, perfect. She's in communication with security and will be relaying all this to Carissa, of course. Keltham shall open by inquiring roughly what fraction of attempted afterlife arrangements fail. Like, just don't go through for some weird reason. One in ten? One in one thousand? This is an unpleasant surprise for Carissa, too, but she'll be on standby to consult. Ah. Fuck. Keltham's going to conclude there's a suspicious reason she can't sell her soul. Probably best handling of that is for her to fake selling her soul as soon as possible, rather than for them to lie about how often it fails. Or really sell it? The order from Asmodeus said, not this day. Maybe it's supposed to be this day instead for some reason. 
She'll answer honestly, then. Perhaps one in twenty? One in fifty? She is not especially in charge of those arrangements. Next question. Out of one hundred random women in Cheliacs, or random eighteen intelligence wizards if that's importantly different, how much would be into pain to roughly the same degree as Carissa, or more? Also doesn't seem worth lying about. Carissa gave Keltham her previous honest guess. Half, perhaps, or a little more than half. Your Carissa is not so much exceptional in how much pain she enjoys as in how much pain it takes to push her to her limits, which is a distinguishable aspect of her submission. Reassuring, but still. Keltham doesn't know if Jacinth has been briefed at all on tropes, but Keltham registers to her the prediction, 30% probability, he's updated after more thought, that something will mysteriously go wrong when Carissa tries to make her afterlife arrangement. And if that happens, he would like Cheliax to check her for being a hidden cleric. Yes. Again. Right away. This plan is still not going to work, somehow or other. But Keltham doesn't know what else to try at that point. If her afterlife arrangements get made successfully, then, assuming afterlife arrangements couldn't work with somebody having a split personality, one side of which is a Zonkuthon plant, that the other side doesn't know about, everything he just said can be safely ignored, which, on Jacinth's priors, should happen 19 times out of 20, or 49 times out of 50. So really, on the view that seems normal, there shouldn't be much chance of this contingency arising in the first place, right? All of this should be reported to Keltham as priority interrupt, given either possible outcome. Carissa being unable to sell her soul is ten times as likely if that trope is in play, and makes that trope ten times likelier once observed. Why is he like this? They'll just have to pretend to sell her soul, no way around it. Jacinth is in fact feeling somewhat unnerved here, but as with gods... Anything having to do with tropes gets copied to Aspexia Rogaton, so it's not truly her concern past this point. Jacinth will see to it that Keltham's wishes are thoroughly obeyed. How does she manage to reply to an ordinary request like that? Keltham says this out loud. Practice. Yes, well, thank you very much, then. Sorry for the interrupt. Hope it wasn't too bothersome. Keltham shows himself out. The girls have mostly finished lunch and are preparing spells, or, in Carissa's case, copying new ones out of a securities spellbook. He shall obtain a bit more lunch for himself, and remind all of them that he's asking for Fox's cunnings to spread around, and going forwards, let him know if there's something he can do with his own spell slots to make up for that. They're preparing Fox's cunning and will count on him for incidental healing. They mostly only get a couple second circle spells, but are used to those being non-personal discretion. They're not displacing anything. Keltham is under the impression that one should not engage wizards in conversation while they are preparing spells. Thus, he should not resume conversation with, for example, Meritzel. This will probably take a while. He'll gawk for a bit with detect magic, and then maybe see what policy is about engaging securities in conversation while they're on duty. We can answer questions, but should call back up if you seem to want more than a simple question answered. I'm actually wondering a bit about some books mentioned scrolls, which sound like single-use casts. I've been keeping some of my own slots full with various emergency or contingency spells, like an early judgment for an emergency emotional stability restoration, or sending, in case I get successfully lost somehow, or kidnapped without being spell-blocked. If I'm loading as many Owl's Wisdoms as possible tomorrow, it'd be useful to have, 
for example, an early judgment single-use and sending single-use, so that my emergency contingencies aren't occupying my actual spell slots. Probably also requires something to carry them in, if they aren't quite small. Thrills take skill to use and can backfire if you're not experienced using them. They're harder to use the higher circle of the spell they imitate. I can put in a requisition if you want to plan on spending some time learning how to read them. This does seem like a good emergency capability for Keltham to have, and will free up his spell slots and so occupy fewer security spell slots with his requests. Keltham should maybe practice his own magic, trying to hang his first one-circle wizard spell. Can someone with an illusion and arcane sight help him bulldoze the early stages again? Then security will put in a requisition for some training scrolls for him, and then scrolls of emergency backup spells when he's mastered those and help with an illusion while he attempts to hang a first circle spell. Keltham attempts to be a wizard. Well, more of one. Apparently, if it's just the cantrips, you are not a proper wizard. It takes fresh wizard students at least a year to learn first circle spells, but they are typically significantly younger and don't often have an arcane sight-aided illusion so they can see exactly what they're doing. And ones as smart as him are awfully rare. He doesn't have it quite down by the time the girls are done preparing their spells, but he's getting tantalizingly close. Being a wizard is pretty tantalizing, yes. What if he tries for an additional eight minutes? Okay, at this point it feels like it should be working, but somehow even when he's holding the magic in what looks like the exact right place, it doesn't. Does the very experienced expert helping him have any advice to say about that? Might be a limitation of barreling at it from the illusion visual angle as hard as one possibly can. Close your eyes. Feel the magic. Or plausibly take a break and go do something completely different for six hours, and then try closing your eyes and feeling the magic. He'll close his eyes and try feeling the magic. If that doesn't work, yeah, he'll come back in six hours. It maybe makes it feel perceptually clearer what's not quite in the right place for the spell to hang yet. It doesn't make the spell magically behave itself. Eh, if he's not still in the same place as yesterday, he's making progress, and that's good enough given the standard speed of such things. It seems Keltham isn't above comparing himself to Galarian about wizardry, so since experience has suggested that people will not just tell Keltham things he might want to know, without him asking, is there such a thing as a one-use item of sending which doesn't need scroll reading to work? Is there a way to take an owl's wisdom that would hit one person and pay a reasonable amount of resources and make it hit twelve people, or two people? Is there a way Keltham can store a cleric spell and make it go off later without it still occupying a slot? Is there anything people do to get more spell slots? But no one has heard of such a magic item, and they wouldn't expect it to exist. Sending's the kind of spell that's hard to make into a magic item. Two, Mass Owl's Wisdom is the sixth circle, but it does exist and would get all the girls at once. The High Priestess can have it tomorrow. Three, no, short of building a magic item that casts that cleric spell, which does, among other steps, involve casting the spell into the item. Four, over time, wizards notice efficiencies and can eke out more spells. Clerics tend to get more spells from their god as they rise in their god's service. That's about it. Keltham is not authorized to know about pearls of power because more spell slots for Keltham makes their lives harder. Does it happen to be the case that Wem, possibly only after his relationship with Carissa deepens enough, he can collaborate with her in a way where she makes most of the sending or early judgment item and Keltham casts the spell into it? It's been repeatedly mentioned how good Carissa is at enchanting items. This should play a role in the Aerolarp somehow. Trope thinking. Casters can collaborate on a magic item that requires multiple spells, if they don't individually have all the spells to make it. 
It usually comes up if an item requires something only clerics get and something only wizards get. Sending isn't that. Wizards get it too, though early judgment is. The problem with an item of sending is that it has a ten-minute casting time and then takes input from the caster. Both of those things make a spell harder to lay in an item. I can try, if you want. I'd need a crash course in wondrous items. Weapons enchanter, right. But arguendo, early judgment is touch-targeted and cast quickly, so you should be able to make a small poking needle of early judgment, right? If it's a mentalistic magic conceptual thingy, you could also imagine that as a weapon that distracts somebody during combat. Also, it doesn't have to do it unboundedly many times. Doing it once or maybe three times would be enough. I can probably make a tiny sword of early judgment if you cast the early judgment at the stages where it needs that. Sure. Material cost? Time cost, both yours and mine? Yours is practically trivial. You would just have to cast it once a day when I say when. I think it's the kind of thing where if I was working from an existing prototype, it'd be 3,000 GP in spell silver, maybe less. But the general rule of thumb is that it's at least double that to invent something you haven't seen before. Probably a couple weeks of work. Almost definitely not worth that much of your time, alas. Also, in retrospect, he did not think of this quickly enough. Pokey thing that gives you a deeply emotional and possibly addicting experience each time you stab yourself with it is potentially a bad thing to invent into Galarian or have around even for himself. That's not trope reasoning. It's pattern recognition in general. Cost of one scroll, and how long does it probably take me to learn to cast from scrolls? People who aren't spellcasters at all often find it hard to learn, but spellcasters usually pick it up pretty quick, I think. A couple days of practicing with minor scrolls, maybe? Scrolls sound like obviously the way to go, then, unless they cost a huge amount. Message. Carissa, I have an increasingly bad feeling about your lack of afterlife arrangement. If there's any trope in play at all, that's leaving an opening for something interesting to happen to you before you make it into the safer parts of hell. Can we go have that talk right now? Yes, of course. Keltham apologizes to everyone for not resuming faster, but there's something nagging at his brain, and he's going to go try clearing it before continuing. Good. She has something to do anyways. She goes with Keltham to his bedroom. What's worrying you? Carissa, I think you have not fully updated on your environment becoming as improbable as yours has become. You met somebody at the World Wound who's not supposed to exist in Galarian or be alive at all. His shiny new project has God Wars starting around it. Cade and Kalian taps Pilar with candy powers and sends her to Elysium, and then the queen decides to go on a date with you. You may think it's safe to leave your afterlife arrangements hanging for an additional hour, because probably nothing is going to happen in an hour. I think we should expedite that process to its maximum reasonable speed. Not rush it and risk making errors, to be clear, just because a lot of improbable things have happened doesn't mean particular improbable things will happen. I was wrong about Asmodia coming back with superpowers. Part of the doom of being unsure if you recognize a pattern is when the pattern seems so much easier to call after the fact than in advance, and that's a sign of the phenomenon maybe not being real. But even leaving aside everything about tropes, there's a sense in which it feels stupid to leave open a vulnerability like that. We have adversaries. Other gods may be our adversaries. We don't get to assume statistically normal probabilities of adverse events, because smart enemy actors may be trying to force them as outcomes upon reality, using pathways we cannot visualize in Toto.
If your afterlife arrangements are pending a conversation you'd like us to have, we should have that conversation. If there's any slowness in the process for doing this under the Church of Asmodeus's supervision, where you can't just walk into Yacinth's office and say it's time, we should schedule that as soon as possible. Do the scheduling step before the conversation. She takes a deep breath. You're right. Here's an idea. An agreement like ours would not, typically, encompass my soul or my afterlife. Would you want it to? I would need to know a lot more about the details. She prepared so many lies about this. So, the normal arrangement that, say, Asmodia made when she graduated from school or that Meritzel would have made yesterday is that your soul, on death, becomes the property of a devil in hell, one you picked out in advance based on good reviews and an organization you're interested in joining. When you die, you go to that devil, and they're responsible for orienting you, housing you, clothing you, training you, all of that, at which point you work in their organization until you've paid off the services provided. They can't make you work, obviously, but if you go work somewhere else while you have an outstanding contract, they get your pay from wherever you do end up working. Obviously, devils compete on how cheaply they can help you so the size of the debt ends up being small, and how valuable the work you'll be doing is, so you'll be able to pay back your debt very quickly, and how nice the living and working conditions are, and how interesting the work is. My plan was always to be a weapons enchanter in Dis. It'll take me a long time to get oriented. Magic works differently there. I won't be able to pick up where I left off when alive. But I'll be very valuable once I'm sorted, so I should be able to get a good deal. I'm not worried about that. It just occurs to me as the sort of thing where you might prefer I not be owned by someone else. Yeah, that makes sense as something to check with me. Uh, for my answer to be understandable, some quick background on civilization's standard relationship escalation lattice. The gist of what Keltham is currently trying to convey. Dathilan has a notion of two people promising, not swearing to each other to be together even in the future, when they come back. This is literally as far as a relationship can possibly escalate. It is well past having multiple children together and raising them to maturity. It is well past staying together for a few decades after that. It is moderately past synchronising your cryo-suspension arrangements so that it happens when one person feels sort of overdue and the other person feels a bit of regret about leaving earlier. Because more than any of that, they want to finish out all of their first lives together and not be alone, nor leave the other alone, even for just a year. People who say this to each other sometimes break up only 20 years later, and that is statistically more common than the breakup of couples who just semi-promised they'd be together for the rest of their first lives, with intent to think things over together when they actually got to the future. For this to happen to you is one of the more social, epistemic, reputation-affecting errors you can make in the realm of relationships. Predicting a relationship will last 20,000 years, when it doesn't last 20. No fire prediction market has ever put more than a 70% chance on a promise like this, a promise upon the future holding up. And that's as of when the two go into cryosuspension, together still unbroken. Usually before you had a kid, You'd want more like 85% out of a prediction market saying you wouldn't rate that as the wrong decision retrospectively. 
Likewise, before you started talking socially about your two-decade monogamy compact like it was going to be a real thing and not just a fond aspiration. People who say this is what they mean to do and whose dignity calls on them to accept questions and objections are typically asked if they've considered that maybe the future could run vastly superior matching algorithms on available mates and have qualitatively different and better potential mates who'd still be interested in an ancient. It's an obvious thought, isn't it? And yet even so, some Dathalani look at each other and smile and say they've got it good enough and would rather hold none of themselves back from the promise that they make to each other. They don't need to worry about what future opportunities they might be passing up or whether their lives would be objectively better if they made a different decision or if it's really honest to make somebody else a promise like that when the statistics and prediction markets say what they do because they just don't need to let that sway them. That's why not. A majority of civilization mostly thinks those people seem crazy from a standpoint of expected utility maximization, but, at the same time, has a lot of respect for that. The kind of respect you give to somebody when you wonder deep down if maybe they're doing it right, and you're the ones doing it wrong. This is legitimately actually faster than Keltham is comfortable escalating their relationship. There's also the pragmatic point that Keltham does not currently have an organizational branch in hell to protect Carissa, and that her current state is a vulnerability, maybe an awful vulnerability. That said, Carissa is also right that the notion of somebody else owning her soul, even if they don't own her, does not sit well with this new gender trope that has always been inside Keltham. And they're living in a world of low probability, and Keltham does not want to close off the prospect of their relationship escalating that far in time. He can think of one class of obvious solutions. Does Carissa have her own suggestions? One thing that comes to mind, and it might take some searching to find a devil who'll agree to this, is an arrangement where you own an option on my soul. And right now, if I die, I go to the devil I'm contracted with. But you can, at any future point, call in your option if you decide that you want to, at some later point when we know each other better and you have a bunch of operations in hell. Yep. That's exactly the same thing I was thinking. I don't know very much about how that would be done, but we can definitely ask. Any reason they shouldn't go set that in motion literally right now? To the high priestess's office it is. If you wish to support this AI reading and others like it, please visit patreon.com slash AI. Any help is appreciated. And thank you to executive producer John Doe 7776059.